0: We're here. Everybody, thank you for being here. Uh, The person who I have right in front of me needs no introduction, but I'm going to give an introduction as good as I can. For those who know me, uh, a little longer than I know that I have not always was a Christian. As a matter of fact, there was a time when I was an anti-Christian. And um, the Lord has been convicting me for the past couple of years. And I was very ashamed for being so neglectful with my own faith and the Lord has sent this man right here in front of me in order to help uh, understand my faith as no one else has done so I have if you give this man your full attention or and are engaging him in his teachings it's an absolute uh, guarantee that you will get strengthened in your faith and I have been a beneficiary of this man's teaching for the past one and a half year or more um the Holy Spirit has used him to teach every one of us, and uh, he's a, he's a, a personal hero of mine. So it's an absolute honor to have you here, Brother Sam and Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you, brother. I just feel bad. I'm wearing a Batman shirt, and you're wearing. See, if I knew you're going to dress up, I dress up too. So I don't want to be disrespectful to your channel, but appreciate it, brother. No, praise the Lord, Jesus Christ. One thing is, I just pray in Jesus' name that He, and I mean this from my heart that He destroys my pride and arrogance and keep me humble and teachable. And I pray that for you as well, not just me, we all need it. The Holy Spirit will fill us and that the Lord Jesus will never allow me to think highly of myself because knowledge puffs up and I struggle with with my flesh and pride. May Jesus, my Lord, increase in you and I. May Jesus, my Lord, your Lord, our Lord, wash us in His blood and fill us with the Spirit and destroy our pride and arrogance so that Jesus will shine in us and that we won't bring attention to ourselves in Jesus' name. So, thank you for having me, brother. I mean, appreciate it, man. Always. I just don't like my muscles are as like tight like yours.
0: Oh. oh, please don't, please don't. By the way, it takes a lot for you to be to an- anger me against you. So, wow, there were a couple Thanks of
1: Lord for his grace that he puts love in your heart to be patient with because I'm a work in progress. I can push buttons, but I don't mean to. I don't want to cause anyone stumble, and I pray the Holy Spirit will use you as a lion of the faith, and finish the race with integrity. And I pray that for all of us in Jesus' name. But, brother, I want to then bring you on my channel here, your interview, because you said you were an anti-Christian. Did you, like, become agnostic atheist?
0: There, there was an agnostic atheist. You could probably say yes. Yeah. there were, I was born as a, a nominal Christian, like the Armenian Apostolic Orthodox Church. Now I'm going to church. We have Jesus, they have Muhammad, et cetera. But it, it, it was like, I am this, and this is like the, the the Bible, and this was me all of my life up until like a couple of years ago. And um, the, the storyline is a bit that I was very zealous. I had like my worldly passions. I was having my own ambitions. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to be a musician, etc. I'm going to the gym, like this constantly forward moving motion. And then what, there was a time when the Lord was working in my heart, and that. Forward moving zeal, he has used for his glory, and I hope that every piece of wisdom, health, uh, yeah. everything that I have is for his glory alone. And the person we are going to talk about today is our hero, our, our hero, hero Paul. Have you heard once,
1: Christ, yeah, filled with the Spirit. We love Jesus more than this world. May we be like him and his love for Jesus Christ, amen. One thing we have a connection, you're Arminian, I'm Assyrian. Not only do we have an ancient connection. A lot of Assyrian Armenians marry. My cousin's married to Armenian. But sadly, our people went through a tragedy, a genocide in the 20th century in 1917 when the Kurds and the Turks slaughtered over 1 million Armenians, Assyrians, and Greeks. But those holy martyrs, we trust, are now resting in the presence of the Lord Jesus and their blood will not go unavenged. The, as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is a seed of it's the church.
0: church. Amen. Amen. I've always had a, a strong, strong connection with my Assyrian, Greek, Chaldean, Aramaic people. Okay. Like, yeah, I know. For instance, that the last time there was a a, a a Semite sister, a Chaldean sister, if I recall correctly, and she was asking, "Do would you like her to have some aprach?" We said, "No, we don't say aprach. We say tolma. We also say tolma." So, yeah, yeah right, brothers, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, By okay. the way. By the way, uh, when I told my friends that uh, I was inviting you, he also said, tell him to come to Holland. If you, if the Lord's putting on your heart to come to Holland... I wanted is... to. but yeah.
1: so With COVID and the restrictions and the vaccinations, now I was told, you cannot travel to Europe unless you're vaccinated. Mm. right? So, if God opens the door and does a miracle, because I wanted to come to Europe and meet brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, but then COVID hit, and now the restrictions on, now they want proof of vaccination. So, I'm not getting vaccinated anytime soon and I'm not into the conspiracy theory where I just, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see because people are taking this vaccination and we don't know what the effects are. A lot of people I know died from it, suffered from it. So I don't know. Yeah. I want to hold off as much as I can by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But with that said, if God opens the door, I'll be there. Right.
0: Thank you. You, you know, guys what? Speak Deutsch? yeah, we speak, we speak Deutsch. Yeah. Deutsch. Okay. Deutsch. Okay. <laughs> so you know that the, the door is always open we have a lot of uh, brothers and sisters who are eager to I, to welcome you love here to,
1: yeah. i'd love to come and meet armenians assyrians chaldeans even just europeans who love jesus christ our lord we're all one family born of one spirit and we're going to be together forever by the grace of jesus christ our lord amen. so
0: amen yeah so i had you i had the idea of course a bit longer in my mind to have you on, but I was like, yeah, I do not want to invite Sam just for the sake of inviting him. I just, there has to be a particular subject that I would like to address that we can go uh, into the depths. And um, yeah, I know you have already done some testimonies here and there. So I was like, yeah, I don't want to be the same dead old horse, but I did realize that you one time said that um, Christ is our God, but Paul's our hero. And that's a particular tree that I really would like to hear a lot of more Christians use the same uh use that same uh, language yeah. um but there i hear here and there a particular Christians say that that paul paul's letters are not that significant significant compared to the gospels for instance now i know that for well over 20 years you have written articles your every particular objection under the sun you've already addressed so this is nothing new for you mm-hmm. um, if you hear this particular objection what comes to your mind in order to yeah. change someone's mind well, first, again,
1: like you prayed uh, before we went live, we asked the Holy Spirit to take over the conversation in our tongue, save us from error and stammering confusion, and recall the facts perfectly for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, because I don't want to be make mistaken. I don't want to make any mistakes. So we trust the Spirit to perfect us for the glory of Jesus Christ. So we give this to him and to enable us to speak of his servant, Paul, because Paul was a slave of the Holy Spirit, used mightily by the Spirit to glorify Jesus Christ. The people that usually say that, it's because many of the Christians either have not interacted with anti-Christian polemics, either online or out there as they evangelize, because sadly, many Christians are not evangelizing. I'm not trying to put them down, right? But we don't have many Christians who are evangelizing, and if they're evangelizing, they're either evangelizing locally with people who don't know much about the faith, much about the liberal islamic attacks on christianity when i say liberal and islamic because in liberal academia most of the professors are atheists slash agnostic we don't believe the Bible's god's word don't believe it's historically accurate don't believe that jesus is god in the flesh rose from dead and then you have muslims same mentality and the bible's corrupt even though they believe in jesus and paul is their enemy so because they don't interact with these groups they're not aware that As far as academia is concerned, when I say academia, I'm talking about the scholarship that you're going to be learning in the universities, secular universities and colleges that are not even Christian. The Gospels are not believed to be the first documents. We have 27 books that make up the New Testament. Now, the majority of scholars would agree that at least the majority of them, if not all of them, are first century documents. They're written within the first century. Now, there are some who would dispute, let's say, the authorship of Second Peter, the authorship of Jude, as well as some of the Pauline writings. For example, there are three particular epistles attributed to Paul called the pastoral epistles. Pastoral, because these are letters that Paul is not writing to churches, but to his followers, to Titus and Timothy. So it's more of a pastoral concern a Spiritual Father's Heart for Spiritual Sons. So you have Titus, written to Titus, and two letters to Timothy. Sadly, majority of scholars don't believe Paul wrote that. They believe they're forgeries. They were perhaps com- composed in the latter part of the first century or started second century. So besides those books, most scholars agree that many of our books are first century documents. However, they don't believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, John were the first written. If you go by the dates assigned by critical scholarship, and when I say scholarship, I just want people to be aware. That doesn't mean they're right. When I say academia, that doesn't mean they're right, because a lot of it is theories, and most of the theories are based on an assumption that God doesn't really inspire individuals or reveal future events. What do I mean? I don't want to belabor the point. For example, they will date Mark, maybe 65, 70 AD, Matthew, Luke, In the 70s, perhaps even 80s, and John in the 90s. Now, why would Mark be dated around 65? Because the assumption is, if there is a prophecy, if there is a declaration of an event that's to take place, scholars believe that if that event happened, let's say you have Jesus announcing a future event and happened, most likely this was written after the fact and read back into the life of Jesus to make it as if Jesus prophesied the future so in mark you have a this this uh, prophecy of jesus where he says jerusalem will be destroyed And the temple will be destroyed well that started happening around 66 a.d between 66 to 73 a.d You had what's known as the jewish war where there was a jewish revolt against rome and titus the general at that time brought up an army against jerusalem and they encamped around jerusalem where the jews could not come out of jerusalem And that lasted about seven years, and then the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So if prophecy doesn't exist, then there's no way 40 years earlier Jesus could have known these details. So Mark must have been writing close enough to have seen the warning signs. Uh Uh-oh, there's a revolt, the Roman army's on the rise, and then retrojected back into the life of Jesus, a prophecy that Jerusalem would be destroyed. That's why the late dating so that's why they don't believe Mark, Matthew, Luke, John are the first New Testament documents. So what are the first documents that they believe were written? The letters of Paul, those that they deem to be genuine. For example, someone like Bart Ehrman or even James Tabor, because you're holding up his book. These are, uh, him especially, ultra liberal, ultra liberal. I mean, he's even fringe. He's way out there, even for liberals. Bart Ehrman's another liberal who tries to be... As balanced as possible agnostic atheist and so he'll admit there was an historical jesus he was killed the historical paul did not invent christianity barton will tell you he did not invent christianity he inherited christianity from those who converted before him and that paul saw a vision that convinced him convinced him jesus is physically alive in heaven reigning as god so they would assign Paul's letters as the first books written that became part of the New Testament. And they would say that 1 Thessalonians is actually the first New Testament book. They assigned the date between 49 and 50 AD. So when historians want to know about the origin of Christianity, the roots of the Jesus movement, the start of a church, they look to Paul's letters, not to the Gospels. They don't look to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, they will look to those Gospels if they want to know something about what the historical Jesus taught. So they've come up with criteria, criteria to determine whether a saying authentically goes back to Jesus. Now, again, this is all arbitrary. The Criteria, they made it. The the principles they use to determine whether something happened, they all made it up. It's their criteria. And therefore, the only weight you can give to such a criteria is if you respect their opinion and deem them reliable enough. To come up with a criteria to determine whether something historically happened. So what do evangelicals do? They try to beat them at their own game. They will apply their own criteria that they came up with arbitrarily. And use that criteria to get back to the historical Jesus. And show that the historical Jesus did claim to be divine, unique son of God. Who was killed and left the tomb empty. But with that said, when they want to know about the roots of Christianity. How it started. They look to Paul. Paul is primary. Then they will look to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as I said, the criteria that they've come up with to determine, did Jesus say this? Did he say something like this? Is it close to what Jesus would have said? Or is this something read back into the life of Jesus and put in the mouth of Jesus? And so using this method, starting with Paul and then the criteria to determine which parts of the Gospels authentically record Jesus's words, they will basically tell you, and they're not unanimous, by the way. The same author will use the same criteria to, con- to a different opinion about Jesus. For example, Bart Ehrman says that Jesus was an apocalyptic preacher, meaning he was one of these end-time preachers who announced that God's judgment was about to come, the end of the age was about to come, and the Son of Man would come and vindicate him as a Messiah. And yet you'll have others who use the same criteria to show, no, the historical Jesus claimed to be the unique divine Son of God. Not just the Messiah, but God's unique divine Son, would reign in glory with God and would come to judge living and the dead. So even the criteria does not lead to the same conclusion. Two scholars will use the same criteria to argue for different understandings of the historical Jesus. So that just tells you how arbitrary it is. But be that as yeah. it may, what evangelicals do and conservatives do, and I say evangelicals because most of the scholars interacting with them are the evangelical scholars. But you have also other Christians who are conservative using that method. Like among Catholic apologists, you have a Christian named Brad Pitre, P-I-T-R-E, Brad Pitre. He's written some books. Now, off the top of my head, the titles escape me, but he's written a book on historical Jesus, Brad Pitre, P-I-T-R-E. He's a conservative Catholic, and he's used that method to show that the historical Jesus is a unique divine son of God who died and was raised again. So for the Christians who do not start with Paul, now I understand why, because you start with Jesus. He's the God of the church. And as far as we're concerned, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not just inspired, they're historically accurate. If they tell you this is what Jesus said, he said it. That's not how scholars think. So if we want to use their own method against them to bring them to the truth of Christianity, we can use their criteria, but we need to be careful and not be enslaved to it why? Because their criteria is something they made up. It's not infallible, it's not inspired, and it's not necessarily <clears throat> reliable, right? I mean, one, uh, well, for example, one, one of the methods they'll use to arrive at a statement being authentically <clears throat> from Jesus. It's called the criterion of embarrassment, the principle of embarrassment. If there's something in the Gospels that seems to be embarrassing— then it's unlikely that the authors would make it up because authors will tend to smooth over <clears throat> embarrassing details because they want to portray the characters in the narrative in the best possible light. So if there's something you read about Jesus, that seems embarrassing. Like for example, when he says to the sire Phoenician woman, uh, it's not fitting to give the bread of children to their dogs, man, that's quite embarrassing. If Jesus is God and he loves everyone, why would he? So on that basis, this must authentically go back to jesus because why would a christian make it up but then again assumes that this was embarrassing to the people who recorded it You see the point in other words for me to know this is embarrassing i'd have to have access to the mindset of the author to know that this was something that would be too embarrassing for him to simply make up now i don't believe anything is makeup but you get the point it's very arbitrary right yeah. you have to first assume what would be embarrassing to the people at that time in order to then argue this would be embarrassing well how do you know what may be embarrassing to you may not have been embarrassing to them.
0: It's uh, relative.
1: Yeah, so it's very arbitrary. But with that said, we're trying to beat them at their own game, use their own criteria against them to leave them no excuse for rejecting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. All right? So you have to start with Paul. The first letter these scholars say was written is 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter by Paul, and it's dated around 4950 AD. And then they'll tell you Corinthians, the 1 Corinthians, around 55 AD some would even place around 52 AD so this is great for us because Paul does say a lot in these letters that gives us a window into the origins of the Christian faith and what the eyewitnesses to Jesus both friendly and hostile were claiming about the historical Jesus and what they believed about him so that's how we start
0: right that was clear no that was that was perfect that was absolutely perfect but if, if, if you like i'm reading a book currently uh i'm hopefully god willing i'll have him on, the, on my podcast as well this is the gentle answer of gordon de nichol and in, a, in the beginning he's uh telling us that uh he's he's actually one of the scholars he's really trying to figure out the dynamic between christians and muslims and how we can convince the muslims to read the bible and just forget the fact that it was all corrupted yeah. he was telling them that the, the person who instantiated christianity our lord jesus why would we make up a story about him him being crucified beaten to the bloody pulp etc etc who would make up such a story about him and corrupt everything about it that would actually make not much sense actually coming to the the criterion of embarrassment
1: yes yes, yeah precisely
0: you want to say something about that
1: yeah oh sure yes here's the the thing um one indisputable fact by everyone who believes that there was an historical Jesus. This is a fact that if you believe Jesus is not a myth, because sadly you have a fringe group out there, and I hear they're quite popular in Europe.
0: Uh, Robert M. Price, uh, those type yes. of folks. You know.
1: And I heard that it's really popular in Europe, where they do believe that Jesus is mythical, or perhaps even Paul. If you're not a Jesus mythicist, and you believe historical Jesus existed, one fact that everyone agrees on, there's no dispute, he was killed by crucifixion. I mean, even Bart Ehrman recently was interviewed by a Muslim apologist where he was trying to get Bart Ehrman to destroy Christianity and support Islam. And in that debate, he goes, there's one thing I know definitely about Jesus. He was killed by crucifixion. I have no doubt about it. He said that, you know, yeah. to, the, to the dismay of the Muslim.
0: By uh, chapter 4, verse 157.
1: Yes. And, and so he also then said that the historical Jesus did believe he was a special son of God. He was the son of God in a special sense. That's another problem. He goes, so on historical grounds, as someone who's an atheist slash agnostic, who's just trying to do serious history, so Bart Ehrman claims, on historical gl- grounds, Jesus believed he was God's son in a special sense, and he was killed by crucifixion. Now, Bart Ehrman also admits that on historical grounds, and I'll come back to the issue of Muslims and crucifixion, but I just want to establish that historically, there is no serious historian who's just basing his findings on the evidence, the historical data, the archaeological data, the textual data, who does not think that Jesus is a myth, denies the crucifixion. There's no way. So even Bart Ehrman, who has written books and done sessions where he really undermines and attacks the Christian faith, even though he claims he that's not his intention, obviously it is, but be that as it may, he has to make concessions, as a serious historian, and he'll tell you, the historical Jesus believed he was God's son in a special sense and believed that God would vindicate him at the end. Now, he comes up with a weird theory that the Son of Man is someone different from Jesus and that Son of Man will come and vindicate Jesus and make him the king of God's kingdom on earth. We can get into that. But he then admits Jesus was killed, that's a fact, and he makes another concession, which is damaging to Islam. And nearly every Historian, not necessarily Christian, atheist agnostic, like Gerard, uh, Gerard Ludemann, that name Gerard, it's hard to get
0: Gerard
1: Gerard Ludeman, atheist. But he's a Jesus historian, and he says, the disciples of Jesus saw visions that convinced them Jesus was raised physically alive, and he's now reigning in heaven. Bart Ehrman also says, and it's in, it's in, it's in his book, How Jesus Became God. He says, Jesus' disciples, and he mentions two by name, Mary Magdalene and Peter, Mary Magdalene and Peter, had visions convincing them. Now, they both had visions independently, and they both had a vision where God raised Jesus physically, bodily, alive to heaven, and now Jesus is reigning as God from heaven. Then he says, Paul had a similar vision. Paul, who is an enemy of the faith, also had a vision that convinced him God had raised Jesus physically, bodily. From the dead, and now he reigns in heaven as God. So this is problematic for Islam because on historical grounds, Jesus was killed. On historical grounds, the eyewitnesses Jesus claim that they saw Jesus alive, physically bodily, and was exalted physically bodily to reign not as a slave but as God, not the Father but as God, one with the Father. So let me just uh, close this down because I don't want to get distracted while oh, my mic sure. is open. Mm-hmm. All right, so. And then you have Paul. Now, that, that poses a problem because all historians will tell you that Paul was an enemy of the faith. He persecuted faith. He hated Christianity. And partly why? Because he had a problem with Jews worshiping this man. In fact, if you read the book of Acts. Now, again, obviously someone like Vernon Bernard, Bernard doesn't believe it's completely historically reliable. But he does believe there is historicity in it, that there are things that are historically true. If you read the book of Acts, Acts 9... Paul is persecuting Christians because they're worshiping Jesus. They're calling on the name of Jesus and believing that he's the divine son of God. For To him, which would have been blasphemy as a monotheistic Jew, similarly to the Muslims. All of a sudden, he does a 180. He now worships the very Jesus whose movement he was trying to destroy, and he dies as a martyr for that movement. These are stoker facts. What accounts for it? To simply say he's a deceiver, that doesn't work. What did he gain by converting to the Christian faith, a faith that he was trying to destroy, a faith that he got persecuted for, a faith that he went to prison, beaten, tortured, and then eventually beheaded. And he didn't gain anything by worldly benefit. What did he gain by then converting to this movement? Nothing from a worldly perspective. So why did he convert? The only answer is he was convinced Jesus is alive and his glorified physical body and reigns as God. Now then you have to explain that.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, a two weeks ago, I was watching uh, a session from uh, Dr. Gary Habermas. Absolute hero. Uh, he, was, he heard the objection of that Paul was uh, trying to est- putting himself up the ranks. But wait a minute. Paul, being someone who was taught under Gamaliel, uh, yes. was the, the grandson of Hillel, was like the dynasty of the Second Temple period. They were like the Harvard of the time. And Paul was becoming a Sanhedrin. He was the upper class already, and he became like the downtrodden of the downtrodden, like the, the, the nasty Christians. What did he gain, actually, except for the fact that he was honestly convinced? So there you have it.
1: Yeah. Paul himself recounts in Philippians 3, 4, if you read all the way nine, specifically Philippians 3, 4, 6, he says he was as far as the law is concerned, blameless. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He mentions that also in Hebrews 11, 1 from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, zealous for the law, blameless, according to the law, advancing beyond my peers galatians
0: 1
1: yeah yeah that too and also philippians 3 you read philippians mm-hmm. 3 4 9 he mentions it there in romans 11 he talks about he's a hebrew of hebrews and he's from tribe of benjamin and as far as the law is concerned he was zealous yeah galatians 1 and philippians 3 but then he says he, he counted all loss once he knew who jesus truly was it meant nothing to him so no he had nothing to gain by converting to this movement now as far as islam is concerned The Muslims are aware that they have a serious problem in their hands, that historically, skeptics and believers alike all agree Jesus was killed. So then what do you do with that? Because you can't just simply say it was made up if even skeptical historians who are hostile to Christianity know the earliest evidence we have from the very eyewitnesses is that they proclaim that Jesus was killed. Well, really, as a Muslim, you have no way around it because the Quran says that the disciples of Jesus were Muslims. That's in the Quran in chapter 3, you. verse 52. Mm-hmm. Chapter 3, verse 52, and chapter 5, verse 111. It, this says the Hawariyun, tell Jesus, bear witness, we're Muslims. So they're telling Jesus, bear witness, we're Muslims. So that means Peter, James, John, Thomas, they were Muslims. Well, here's the problem, folks. According to Ehrman and Gerd Ludemann and other historians who are atheists, not Christian, the disciples of Jesus, The disciples, not someone who came 50, 100, 200 years later, Peter, James, and John, all preached Jesus was killed by crucifixion and God raised him and glorified him. Now you got a problem, Muslims. That means the Quran cannot be true. It cannot be from God. It is a fraud. So then some Muslims get ingenuous and say, well, the Quran doesn't deny that Jesus was crucified. He was crucified, but he swooned. Something that is laughable because to assume... That the beating Jesus would have underwent just by the flogging itself, just to be flogged by the Romans who had no limit. The Jews could only flog someone 39 lashes because the law limits it to 40. To be safe, they would stop at 39 just in case they miscounted. Romans had no limit. And the type of flogging they inflicted, if you want to get an idea, just watch The Passion of the Christ, which is very close to historical reality. If you survive that beating, that's a miracle. And top of that, you know, not only the flogging, but the beating and then losing so much blood and then hanging on the cross where most people die of asphyxiation because you got to push out to breathe <clears throat> to stay that Jesus survived that and swoon. That's a miracle. This is nonsense. No one believes in the apparent death because it's so contrary to the facts of crucifixion. Yeah. What
0: what what I remember that uh, Gary Habermas also said is that uh, he said that Bart Ehrman, despite the fact that he is trying to make concessions, he's trying to be as as historical historically as possible, but he never has a theory of what happened. Whatever which one he picks, except for the resurrection, of course, because he doesn't believe in it anymore. But whatever which one you pick, you have a lot of problems alongside with it. The swoon. Good luck with it, etc., etc. So yeah,
1: and he he wouldn't even. Even Urban is too smart to say, he says he was killed. He just doesn't know what theory to come up with to account for the fact that the disciples were convinced that Jesus had been raised physically bodily and is glorified. So in the case of Peter and Mary Magdalene, he says bereavement visions, because it is a phenomenon. This is documented in medical field, scientific literature documents what's known as bereavement visions, where you lose someone close to you and you go into such deep anguish and bereavement that you have visions of that loved one. Now, here's the problem. If they did have bereavement bereavement, uh, visions, that still doesn't account. Why did they envision him being raised physically, bodily, to life, as opposed to being transported to heaven like in Elijah and Enoch? A bereavement vision does not convince you your dead one was raised physically and now glorified in a physical body. That wouldn't lead you to believe they had been resurrected. It would lead you to believe they had been exalted. Exalted meaning their spirits had left their bodies. They're now um, alive in a disembodied state. They don't have a physical body. They have a spiritual body, right? But it's not their physical body and they're exalted. So even if it's a bereavement vision, it cannot account for why Peter and Mary Magdalene independently were convinced that Jesus had been raised physically, not simply a spirit leaving his body and he was exalted to heaven. So that's number one. Number two, How do you account for independent individuals having the same type of vision? Meaning, here, Mary Magdalene saw a vision that God had raised Jesus physically. Peter had the same vision. And then you have an enemy who has the same vision. Mm -hmm. How do you account for three individuals at the very least? There were more. All independently from one another, having the same vision that Jesus wasn't simply transported to heaven in a disembodied state but had been raised physically and his physical body now made immortal and now was reigning in that physical body as God. How do you account for independent witnesses coming to the same conclusion and having the same vision or similar enough that they end up believing the same thing? That leads you to Paul. Paul was not bereaving. So a bereavement vision may account for Peter and Mary Magdalene, believing seeing jesus but paul wasn't in depression over the death of jesus he was trying to wipe out the name of jesus destroy the christian movement so how do you explain the vision that paul had what would have led him to have the same vision that peter and mary magdalene had that led him to the same conclusion that jesus was raised physically bodily from the dead never to die again and he reigns in his glorified physical body as god how do you explain that you can't
0: glory glory to god for the fact that he has Revealed themselves in such a way that for those who are honest, yes,
1: just
0: can cannot get again any way around it. Yeah,
1: yeah. The resurrection of Christ, because see the thing that's a nightmare, it's a thorn in the side of atheism, is the birth of the church. And any right. atheist historian knows it. How do you account for the birth of the church? Historically, false or failed messiahs, once they're killed, their movement ends. You will not find in history a failed messiah, messiah who failed was killed his movement continuing, it disappears, it ends, because for the Jews, a dead Messiah is no Messiah. He's a failed Messiah, and it's proof that he's a false Messiah because God would have vindicated him. So if Jesus was a false Messiah or a failed apocalyptic preacher, how do you account for his followers continuing his legacy and dying as martyrs or being persecuted? And then it spreads amongst the Gentiles, Gentiles who give up their worship of gods and goddesses, give up Zeus for a Jew who's not even ethically one of their own, whom they knew had just recently been killed, why would they give up their gods and worship this crucified Jew? So you can't just ignore these facts. And an atheist who struggles with history knows this, and it's a thorn because he or she does not know how to explain the origin of the church.
0: All right. You got a I second? You got one second? Yes. yes. <coughs> It reminds me of uh, this book from Jay Warner Wallace. You recently published this one, Person of Interest. And this particular book is full of images and shows you like um, how the effect of Christ in time has influenced the world. Like nobody in the world of history has the influence that Christ has had. Like if you ask yourself, if God would have entered creation, what kind of effect would you think that he would have? Yeah, there's your answer. And that's the, exactly the same thing where atheists and even Muslims. And he also says, for instance, like New Agers, Baha'i faith, Islam, all these type of people, they are trying to claim Jesus in order to amp up their own 100%. group, whatever. 100%. They all they want they. Jesus. They all want Jesus. But the thing is, Christ does not return the favor. He says, I am the Amen. way, the truth, and the life. So
1: exactly, that's that. Jesus doesn't claim any of them. They all claim Jesus. Yeah. Yes, and. and one more comment about vision visions See, Bart Ehrman, being a naturalist, and he doesn't believe in the spirit realm, thinks that bereavement visions are simply a a hallucinatory state. It's something you hallucinate. No, on the contrary, that's actually what we call vertical empirical evidence for a spirit realm. Why? As a Christian, you and I believe that those who are dead, they're still alive in some state. It's not a physical state because their physical bodies return to dust, but they're still consciously alive. They still exist as disembodied spirits. When I say disembodied, I mean, they don't have a physical body, but they would have a spiritual form and a shape by which they're recognizable because they still exist. It is quite possible that God can send them to comfort you. So bereavement visions are not hallucinations. They're confirmation of a spirit realm in which the dead in Christ are alive and do appear to comfort those by the grace of God.
0: Wow. I did not know that
1: yeah i mean that, that makes a lot
0: of sense because my mother my my grandfather passed away and uh in, in that same couple of months my mother had visions of my grandfather and i was yes, like well that was exactly that makes it's a common lot of sense
1: yeah barterman has studied the literature he says it's common it is more common there are hundreds of thousands of people who have bereavement visions but to him it's just a hallucinatory state no it isn't it's actually empirical evidence that the dead continue to exist and because god is real the spirit realm is real those who are alive in God's presence can be sent to comfort those on earth.
0: God is good. We have, yeah, we have, so our God is the God of the living and not of the dead.
1: Exactly. Yeah. If you die in Christ, you're alive. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though you're dead, yet shall he live. And he who believes and lives shall never die. Never die. So he cannot lie. He left the two empty. So coming back to the issue of Islam, since they are confronted with this, the only explanation they can come up with is either that, Someone was made to look like Jesus that convinced the Jews that Jesus was killed, but then that doesn't explain why Jesus' disciples went around preaching it. That's the problem. They can't say Paul came up with it because even Gerd Lüdemann, Bart Ehrman, you name it, whoever is a historian of Jesus and the Christian movement will tell you, no, Paul did not invent the crucifixion. Paul did not invent the resurrection story. Paul inherited it from those who came before him. Well, who came before him? Even... Someone like Ehrman would place Paul's conversion anyway from three to six years after Jesus was killed. Well, three to six years, the very eyewitnesses are still alive. So he's inheriting it from them, from Peter, James, John. He's not making it up. So that's not going to work. So the only option a Muslim has, the only option, and there are some Muslims who've even used this. I remember a while back, I was reading a pamphlet, a booklet by John Gilchrist. He's a Christian apologist from South Africa responding to the late Ahmed didad because Ahmed didad from South Africa would produce booklets. Now, this man of God, the Lord Jesus raised him up. He wrote written responses, booklets responding. All those booklets and books are on answeringislam.info. If you go to answeringislam.info, individual authors, you'll see John Gilchrist. And his booklets are online for free because it's going to be hard to get them in hard copy. And he's got a response to... D. Dodd's booklet called Crucifixion, F-I-X-I-O-N, right. or Crucifixion, F-I-C-T-I-O-N. Now, in, in his works, he mentions that there was a Muslim at that time. I even quote him in one of my articles. He's not a very famous Muslim. In fact, apart from that, this book, no one knows who he is. He's so unknown that I even forgot his name, but it's in one of my articles.
0: Did you, know you know forget talks? something? That's amazing. Uh,
1: yeah, well, because that just tells you he's not a well-known Muslim. The only reason why I know about him is because Gilchrist cited his book where he argued that a careful reading of the Quran doesn't deny Jesus was killed by crucifixion. He says he was killed by crucifixion, and God raised him, resurrected him. That's right. So then what does 4157 mean? If you want to have the Quran agreeing with the overwhelming historical facts, then the passage can be legitimately interpreted. Now, I've done this. I've actually interpreted this way contextually. It can mean the Jews did not kill jesus for the reason they thought they did because if you actually read the context for 157 if you read from 153 to 157 the quran is narrating the jewish slander against jesus and his blessed mother they're blaspheming the lord and accusing his mother of being illegitimate because if the quran is from muhammad or even a later time wherever these jews were they're pretty much laughing off islam saying wait you want us to follow jesus You want us to believe he's a Messiah whom we killed, got rid of as a fake and whose mother was immoral. So if you read the context, the Quran is now answering those charges, saying, no, his mother was not immoral. She's a saintly woman. She's a godly woman, contrary to your insult and slander. And you neither killed him nor crucified him. Now, it can either mean you didn't kill him at all, you didn't crucify him at all, or you neither killed him nor crucified him for the reason that you thought you did now what was the reason they thought they got rid of him they killed him proving he's a fake that's how it appeared to you that his crucifixion proved he was a fake under god's wrath so that's how it appeared to you but god vindicated him by raising him to himself that's the next verse wow so when you read it that way it does agree with the crucifixion burial and resurrection in fact similar language is used in the quran For an event that no Muslim denies was historical. For example, one says, they, the Jews, neither killed him nor crucified him, but it so appeared to them. Right, And those who doubt are following nothing but conjecture, for they did not kill him for a surety. Kill him for a surety in one sense. Because they're telling Muhammad, we killed him. What more proof do you want? He's a fake. You want us to follow Jesus as the Messiah? Who, this son of Mary whose mother was immoral and you claim he's an apostle, you must be a joke too. Because if you knew any better, you know he's a fake because we killed him. We got rid of him. If he was the Messiah, no one could kill him. So the response is, it appeared that way. It so appeared to you that when you killed him, that you were proving he's a fraud. Nay, God raised him to himself to vindicate him. That's not the reason why he was killed. Now, that language is similar to chapter 8 verse 17. I don't know if you have your crown with you, but open it up. Let me show you what I mean. Get it for me, my friend. I'm going to show you something. Okay, go to chapter 8, verse 17. Not, eight. not a big one. Chap, five. Chop,
0: chapter, chapter 8, verse for...
1: 17. Your eyesight's better than mine because I can't see.
0: Oh, look how small these letters are, but I'll, I'll give it a try. Yeah, chapter,
1: chapter 8, verse 17. 17. This is talking about, according to the tradition, when you go there, to give you a little historical background, this is supposedly talking about the Battle of Badr.
0: Yeah. By the way, this is the Maulana Muhammad Ali translation, oh, yeah. so bear he,
1: with uh, me. He, uh, he actually believes in the swoon theory. He used to. He's passed away. He's an Ahmadiyya Muslim. Right. He's not traditional Muslim. He belongs to the same Islamic group that the late Nabil Kreshi used to belong to. But in 817, notice what it says, if you can read it.
0: So you slew them, not, but Allah slew them. Same they... word in
1: the Arabic, by the way. Saying to the Muslims, you killed them, not, but Allah killed them. Okay, now if you finish it. You see what it also says.
0: And thou smotest not when thou didst smite, in brackets, the enemy. But Allah smote him, and that he might confer upon the believers a benefit from himself. Surely Allah is hearing, knowing.
1: Now, according to the Muslim tradition, uh, traditionalists, this is referring to the battle of Badr, where the Muslims were outnumbered. There were about 313 Muslims, about a thousand pagans, because the Muslims were stealing their caravans. They're robbing the Meccan caravans and the Meccans got upset. So at Badr, they were ready. And so 313 Muslims fought a thousand Muslims and the 313 Muslims, I'm sorry, 313 Muslims fought a thousand unbelievers and the 313 Muslims won. So it's saying you didn't kill them. Allah killed them, but they actually did kill them. They killed them, but it says you didn't kill them. Same language. They did not kill him nor crucify him. So you can either interpret it to mean they didn't kill anyone at all, or the only reason why you were able to kill anyone is because Allah allowed it. Had Allah not allowed them to be killed by your hands, you couldn't kill anyone. So it's the same idea here. You Muslims did not kill them. Allah killed them. You did not throw Muhammad. Allah threw. So is this saying to the Jews, you did not kill Jesus, nor crucify him at all? Or is it saying you did not kill him or crucify him for the reason you think? Allah had him killed, but not for the reason you think. And the proof, Allah raised him up to vindicate him.
0: Right. He didn't so, die
1: uh, the false messiah. It's
0: it's, it's ironic. It's actually mind boggling the fact that they are so staunch at trying to disprove the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord. But it's like, why why bother? <laughs> yeah. Like, come, come, look into the 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 interpretations you're giving right now. They shouldn't be. But the funny thing is, I've I've also read this book called. Uh, the Quran, the yes, crucifixion, Todd and Law. the Quran from Todd Lawson. If you want to laugh, if you on you've already read this book, of course. If you want to laugh, people, you need to read this book. You're the the, the and and trying to trying to explicate and, and trying to figure out the the most funniest thing was that there was a 13th apostle called Sergius who looked like Jesus, and who was the one who was crucified. And you know yeah. who the, who that one was? Written by Ibn Ishaq. The yeah, same see? one of the, of the of the yeah. They Firat came Tastrona. up with
1: some. They say more popular tradition is judas but the earliest one is one of the disciples of jesus volunteered and some say it was no tatawis and so they come up with now what's ironic the quran verse says those who disagree are full of conjecture right it mm-hmm. says in 4157 and those who disagree are full of doubts conjecture because they didn't kill him for certainty it's ironic that's a description of the muslim scholars they're full of conjecture they're full of doubt they don't there,
0: know there is no ijmah. Yeah, no they consensus. don't know. Yeah.
1: So it's ironic. The Quran is loving the accusation against the Jews for being in doubt, whereas it's the Muslims who are not because they can't make heads or tails out of this verse. And what's even more ironic, Muslims are notorious for making up interpretations, but and attributing Muhammad. But ironically, not one of them came up with a sound quote unquote narration to from Muhammad interpreting this passage.
0: You're right. We don't find so it. what we don't find it don't find it anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we so, don't find an interpretation where they attribute it to Muhammad explaining 4157. Where is it? You don't find it. You don't have, right. and the prophet said this is what it means. No, the no. closest you get is Ibn Abbas, who's his cousin, but you were saying something. Go
0: ahead. Yeah, sure. Well, we were talking about the consensus between uh, the Mufas, you don't know about that particular thing, but then the objection would probably be like there was no consensus between Paul and the other apostles. So, my next question is, yeah. uh, in what sense? Do you think that Paul compared or in in relation with the other apostles function, do you think that he had this completely own theology or uh, what would you ask? The exact
1: opposite. No serious historian. I mean, and uh, James Tabor is not a serious historian, in my opinion. James Tabor comes with the fictional fanciful interpretation devoid of any historical fact that there was the Jewish group headed by James in opposition to Paul's group. Right,
0: that was something that surprised me. I was like, what? I didn't know that one actually. So I thought, well, he's a historian, so he might be right. No,
1: no, no, he's not. He's regurgitating old liberal myths that have died out. This is a theory that was 100 years ago postulated. There were two groups, the Jewish group and then the Pauline group, and they were in loggerheads. Now, if you ask James Tabor. What historical archaeological data do you have to show that Paul was in opposition with the Jewish group? Apart from Paul's letters, he has none, because the documents that he will cite will come from the 2nd, 3rd century. These fringe groups of later Jews Mm -hmm. are claiming continuity with the Jewish church in Jerusalem. But even those statements are coming from church fathers of the 2nd century. So what hard historical archaeological textual data do you have from the 1st century? He has none. Mm -hmm. All he has is Paul, but Paul himself says the Jewish group was with him. Galatians 1 and Galatians 2. After 14 years running the race by a vision. So Jesus, our Lord, appeared to him in a vision saying, Paul, you have been preaching 14 years. Now for external appearances, for the Christians to know that you are not a fake, that you are not a charlatan. Go back to Jerusalem and get the right hand of fellowship of those reputed pillars at that time. Those were considered the pillars of the church. And he mentions them. Galatians 2, 1 to 10. He says, it was Peter, James, the Lord's brother, because John's brother, the son of Zebedee, had been killed. He had been martyred. So you have John and James, the sons of Zebedee. But James had been martyred by Herod, not the Herod of Jesus, but one of his sons. And Acts 12, verses 1 to 2, we're told he was killed. So the James that Paul meets 14 years after his conversion is the James, the so-called brother of our Lord, because he mentions him in Galatians 1.19. So if you read Galatians, and there is no serious historian who doubts the authenticity of Galatians and that it's written within the 50s, right? 14 years after, his, let's say, his conversion, we're on the 50s, right? It's one of his earliest letters. And he mentions, 14 years later, he went to Jerusalem and met with the pillars, and Peter, James, and John gave him and Barnabas the right-hand fellowship. Where's the dispute? The dispute that he mentions are with a group of Jews who, though are in Jerusalem, are not representative of James, nor do they have James' authorization. Because he tells you that James, who was the leader of the church, now we have solid historical Tradition that says that James, the Lord's brother, became the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. Okay. And there's an allusion to it in the fact that Galatians 2 says James is one of the pillars. There are three pillars, leaders of the Jerusalem church, James, Peter, and John. But Peter and John were apostles who would spread out all over the world, whereas James did not. He stayed in Jerusalem and was martyred there. And then in Acts 12, 17, when Peter is released miraculously from prison by an angel... He says, tell James I'm leaving. So he's having them report to James, the Lord's brother in Jerusalem. So all of these bits and pieces show that this evidence that we have, or this data that we have saying that James was the bishop of the church at Jerusalem, is solid. And then church tradition says, based on the testimony of a church authority that's cited later, Hegisipius, Hegisipius, that's his name, says that James was martyred around 62 A.D., when he was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple, and then when he landed, they came and stoned him to death. And why was he thrown off the pinnacle? Because he says, Jesus, the Son of Man, is at the door. He's about to come down to judge. And he was thrown off because they took that as blasphemy. Now, notice what James is saying. The Son of Man is about is at the door. He's about to come to judge. Now, notice this is around 62 AD. Seven years later, the temple was destroyed.
0: Oh, I got shivers.
1: You get it? Yeah. Um. And this tradition, there's no reason to belie it. He's affirming Jesus is the unique divine son of man who is going to come to judge Jerusalem for her rejection of the Messiah, their king. And he's thrown off the pinnacle of the temple. And then as he lands, he's stoned to death. Okay. So Mm -hmm. this tells you that the James, that was the leader of the Jerusalem church affirmed the divinity of his so-called brother, the Lord Jesus, and affirmed that Jesus reigns in heaven as son of man and was coming to judge Jerusalem, to destroy Jerusalem temple for rejecting him, all in agreement with Paul. Moreover, Galatians 2 says that James, with Peter and John, gave Paul the right-hand fellowship, saying, yep, your gospel is the gospel we preach. So there's no way you can extrapolate from Paul's letters he's in opposition with james because james he's telling you if in other words you can't have your cake in any two you can't tell me paul is reliable enough to tell you there were jews opposing him but then reject his own testimony that james is not one of them james is on my side over against these jews
0: so this whole point that you just gave just completely decimated like james C Tabor, you're a sleazeback i really when i read this book i was like okay there's like some New historical no, is just something it's to think credible. about? It? Just but just the way you just explained it before, it's like my goodness,
1: yeah, how gullible See, people can be. And the problem is, people are not asking them the right questions. If I was there, I'd ask them the right questions because let me be honest, I'm trying to be as nice as I can, but I'm not politically correct. The guy's a joke, even by mm. liberal scholars, he's out there, he's an extremist, he's he's way out there. He's like one of these Richard Carrier mythuses, he's he's wacky, he's not credible. And if he was on a show where I could interview him, I'd ask him the right questions and you'd see him get discombobulated because it's pathetic the argumentation, but no one is asking them the right questions. Right. Why? Because they they swoon over them, they sally, oh, he's a scholar. He's... No, he's a human being who's got presuppositions, and oftentimes his sinful <clears throat> inclination, his rebellion against God makes him distort. Historical data because he does not want to bow the knee to Jesus, his Lord, God, and Judge. Mm. That's what it is. Right? Don't be deceived. They're not impartial. They're not unbiased. There no one is. We're all biased. I'm biased towards the truth of Christianity. I'm biased towards the Bible's historical accuracy. I'm biased towards Jesus being alive. the risen Lord of glory. He's biased against the Bible, against Christianity, against jesus's Lordship, against God. There is no one who's impartial and biased. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's- and we got to remember that there's no one approaching it impartially. The same historical data. You, let's say you're a <clears throat> evolutionist who believes in macroevolution. We do believe they're microevolution. That's a fact we see. Okay. But let's say you're one who believes in macroevolution and I'm a creationist. We're going to look at the same cell and you and I are looking at the same reality, same fact. And I say, look what God designed. You go, look what natural selection, and chance processes produced. So we're both looking at the same data, but because of our assumption, we're filtering and interpreting the data in light of our assumption. So there's no one who's neutral. That's a lie. Now, the honest thing to do by the power of the Holy Spirit is, once you see the evidence is overwhelmingly against your assumption, then the honest thing to do is give it up and now embrace a new set of biases right that's what many of us that
0: that was what paul says in romans 12 too it is by the renewing of your mind was exactly what i underwent through because i had like uh i was into carl jung gnosticism new age stuff whatever like and when i encountered the bible i was like like of course watching your sessions for instance i was like like as paul says in second corinthians 10 verse 5 all these um strongholds were deconstructed Amen. and that was built up back again and so that's exactly the presupposition you are not,
1: you are not neutral you were biased towards one thing but when god confronted you and challenged you and showed you the facts were against your bias you then humble yourself repented and embraced a new set of assumptions that are anchored in fact
0: sure but it's inherently there's nothing wrong about being biased no, there's nothing wrong like with being biased. So,
1: in fact, there's some wrong where you're detached and have no <clears throat> bias towards them Because when you're not, in other words, if you're if you don't believe in something, then you won't be passionate for anything, right? right. I mean, having then, a bias you're can be good or bad, right? Hmm. Having a bias can be good or bad. The people who are dangerous are those who think they don't have a bias or don't care for anything, because these are the ones who are passionless, and you can see, like you said, lukewarm. So having a bias that you believe and are willing to fight for can be good or bad. So, For example, if you take a Muslim terrorist, he's biased towards Allah, and he's willing to kill and be killed. Imagine if he takes that passion and applies it to Jesus when he converts, like Paul. Paul was the first century equivalent of an Osama bin Laden. That passion he had for what he thought was right drove him to the point of killing those whom he thought were blasphemers but once the spirit transformed them to show you're wrong here's the truth and when he became biased towards Christ that passion didn't die out it was now channeled properly and he turned the world upside down
0: exactly amen and that's what we want
1: right so
0: so if it comes to being biased and if it comes to interpreting like paul Of course, God in his his providence and omniscience already knew the effects that he would have as Paul being an extension of him. Like I believe, for instance, in Isaiah 49, 1-8, that Paul attributes that one to himself and Barnabas as being the extension of the church. But my question is, uh, how do you see Paul's character as someone who has been interpreting and referencing the Old Testament and trying to endorse Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah?
1: Yes, and the reason why Paul did that is because I've, I've told people this. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 10, I'm sorry, and many say that even if a prophet or a dreamer, Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 10, does miracles, and they're bona fide miracles. They're not magic tricks. But then he tells you, come follow God so that neither you nor your fathers have known. Don't do it. God is testing you. In other words, even if... A miraculous resurrection takes place, but the person is telling you, let's follow another God. That's a test. Are you going to believe in the miracle and abandon the truth already established? Are you going to say, well, yeah, okay, so you were raised from the dead. I don't know why you were raised from the dead, but you're teaching me to go against what God has already established to my ancestors. You are a test from God whether I'm going to keep faithful or blindly follow. So Paul realized the resurrection of Christ was not sufficient to prove that Christianity is true. What had to be established is the continuity of Jesus's message with right. the Hebrew Bible. Because if Jesus is God in the flesh, then God must have prepared the people for that. Because God already warned his people in a, beforehand. Look, miracle workers are going to come. They're going to do stuff that are miraculous. You can't explain the way naturalistically. But if they tell you, come and follow a God you don't know, that's a test. So if Jesus shows up and he claims to be the unique divine son of God in the flesh, and he's not the father, and he claims to be worthy of the same worship that the father receives, which the Jews know the father in heaven is our God. And yet there's nothing in the Old Testament that would establish that God is multi-personal or God has a unique son who would be sent to redeem the world. Then the Jews could legitimately say we reject him because that's the test because it contradicts everything we know from the Old Testament. Why do you think Paul, though he could not account for the empty tomb? Because he would have been around to hear the proclamation. The tomb is empty. The body is gone because the body's been raised. That still didn't cause him to investigate. Well, let me examine the matter. It doesn't matter he's raised. You're worshiping a Jew that goes against the Old Testament. You're worthy of death. But when Jesus showed up and knocked him down and blinded him, and he realized, well, no, then. Jesus is reigning in heaven. But how could that be possible? With all my learning in the Old Testament, there must have been something old testament to prepare me for this. So that's why it says he stayed in Arabia for three years to unlearn what he w- had been taught and relearn.
0: That was what he did there.
1: Yeah, great. Because he had to mm-hmm. go and now because he had to be deprogrammed. All that learning that made me miss Jesus, all my rabbinic training blinded me from seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. That means there was something wrong. With the interpretation taught to me by the rabbis, because their interpretation caused me to miss it. Mm.
0: There, there was something called the seven principles of Hillel. I, I, yeah. yeah, that was the, the, the way uh, people like Paul were interpreting the, the Old Testament, like these seven, I don't know exactly on top of my yeah. mind, but that was the, exactly the same way how, for instance, Paul says in Colossians 2 17 that Christ was the foreshadowing. Of exactly. the Old Testament, And we believe that God revealed himself progressively throughout time and by his action. And that no. was exactly what Paul was endorsing. Let me give you
1: an aphorism that I learned because, you know, I was a big Bruce Lee fan, but it's it's a aphorism. It's, Same here. Uh, yeah, I, I believe it's a Zen aphorism where and this applies to Paul because all truth is God's truth. But what happens is Satan steals God's truth and mixes in with falsehood. That's how he works. But this truth is God's truth. And we claim it for the glory of Christ there was a martial artist who went to a martial arts master wanted to learn. And every time that master was telling him something, he goes, Oh, we have that too. Oh, it's in our system. So the master got kind of frustrated. So he gave him a cup of tea and he started tea until it started overflowing. He goes enough. The cup cannot contain anymore. He goes, that's your mind. I can't teach you because your mind is already full unless you empty it you won't be able to taste my tea. What's the point? How does it apply to Paul? Paul was so full of rabbinic Judaism, he could not see the Old Testament properly the way God wanted it to be seen and interpreted, which is why he missed Jesus. Then when Jesus appeared, he realized I have now emptied my cup from rabbinic Judaism and now go read the Old Testament afresh. And then he saw Jesus everywhere. Right. And that's how it worked. So that's why... He had to go back and relearn the Old Testament, and then, wow, how did I miss this? It's right there in front of me. I mean, it's a bit... And this is the danger of biases and traditions that are not anchored. In fact, your tradition and bias can blind you from seeing what's clearly there. And we see it all the time when we're debating Muslims. They're biased that Muhammad is a prophet. The Quran is true, and anything that goes against the Quran must be false. Does not allow them to read the Bible openly and right. honestly to see its treasure, its miracle, its miraculous structure as a proof that's divine in origin. They can't because of their bias. Same thing with Paul. Same thing with rabbinic Jews today, like a Tovia Singer. Their bias for Judaism and their hatred for Christ blinds them from seeing the clear proof that shows the God of Israel is not a single person. Even without mm-hmm. the New Testament, even without bringing them to Jesus, we have Jewish sources before, during, after time of Christ, written by Jews who are not Christians who could see clearly from the Old Testament at least two divine powers in heaven and they can call two divine powers. There you go. You got the book, right?
0: I got a couple of books. Here's see? Alan F. Siegel. Here yep. is uh, Daniel Boyer from Borderlands. Yep. This here is um, The Bodies of God in the Ancient World of Israel, by Thank the way. In, uh, in next coming March, I will have a podcast session with Benjamin exactly. he,
1: He's phenomenal. So now notice these men are not Christians. Right.
0: And I've got one, one, the- one more as well. One second. This is a big one. This is a big one. Thank you. we have some more. I think that's worried. Right. Yeah. This, this one, one is more- from um, Moshe Idel, Ben's Sonship. It's wow. like a, a huge book. And the thing is Moshe Idel has won the literary prize in 2007 so everyone who thinks that those jews that is sort of some kind of a fringe group i beg to differ
1: so that book documents that even before during an after christ there was a large segment of judaism believed there were two correct. powers in it.
0: correct yeah it's in the same category as all the other books
1: see you so what's the point these are some of them are even orthodox jews they're not christians they don't believe in the new testament don't believe in jesus but they admit the historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, the textual evidence from the Hebrew Bible before the New Testament led a large segment of Jews before during an halftime Christ to see there's more than one divine power in heaven. Right. They called it the two powers in heaven. And then when you add the Holy Spirit as the Shekhinah or the presence of God, there you go. There's a trinity. So the whole point is, if you're taught to read the Bible a certain way, that's not faithful to the intended meaning of Scripture the way God wanted to interpret it, you're going to miss all of this. That's why Paul missed it. So he had to unlearn, empty his cup, and then fill it afresh. And then he saw Jesus everywhere, right? Yeah. And that's why he did it though, because what's the point? Miracles in and themselves are not proof that you have God's approval. Jesus himself told us that, right? Matthew 24, 23, 25, many false Christ, false prophets will arise to do signs and wonders to deceive even the elect if it were possible. And then in Matthew 7, Twenty-one, twenty-three. He tells us, On that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do signs and wonders in your name, and I will tell them plainly I never knew you. So the Bible is clear. Miracles in of themselves are not proof you have God's approval because Satan and demons can empower you to do things that humans in their own strength cannot do. Right? Because they have more power and they're high, higher intelligence than us and they can manipulate the laws of nature. Right? So what... His proof is that what you preach is continuous with that which has already been established. Even Muhammad believed in this principle if Muhammad was the recipient of the Quran, if he passed on the Quran. Why? Because all throughout the Quran, what does he say as proof of his prophethood? He's constantly saying, my book confirms what you possess. My book confirms what is between your hands. My book confirms what is with you already. I confirm. I bear witness what you have is true. See, he understood for me to be a true prophet, I must be in line with the prophets before me. I must agree with their message, can't contradict. But sadly for Muslims, he does contradict them, unlike the New Testament. Once the right. Old Testament is properly interpreted.
0: Yeah. So the book that I just showed you just a minute ago, it's just a whole entire collection of like, how are we going to get this pulp into a coherence? Yes. The only thing they got is the Bible being corrupted.
1: Ah, That's it. The, crown breaks the, back back the crown, Lord willing, I'm going to be doing sessions on it. I've done it, but I'm doing it again, where I'm going to show, instead of engaging Muslims on, well, there are Bible contradictions, how to reconcile them. The best way to do it is say, wait, if there's a contradiction in the Bible, all the more proof I can never be a Muslim. What do you mean? You believe in Muhammad, right. you believe in the Quran, and you want me to be a Muslim. But your Quran tells me my Bible is the uncorrupt, preserved words of God. Well, if it has contradictions, that means your Quran is wrong about the Bible. That means I shouldn't follow Muhammad as well. See? That's what you do. Yeah. That's how you engage them. You don't waste time trying to harm because every time you harmonize one, they're going to bring up another because they're not asking sincerely.
0: Right. They always know Christians that they are shackled to it. So use it to your advantage. Exactly. And by the way, Paul did it as well in Acts 17. Like when you when quoted the our hero, Bible. our example, right? Spirit filled yeah. hero. Right. Our example of the faith. Um, I was trying to think of a couple of more questions, like every particular objection that you already had, you already uh, addressed wait i got another one which would be pretty interesting the objection is paul and the others plagiarized the old testament to make it seem that christ was the messiah
1: that's fine let's go with it you're going to then have to explain why is it that the jesus movement paul and the others because remember even serious scholars would say paul did not invent he inherited what was there before him right why did they go around inventing the jesus story to modeled after old testament motifs? if Jesus was killed and buried, because like we said, historically, when a leader is killed, the movement dies out, disbands, and it doesn't continue. So why would Paul and why would the others invent a story of Jesus modeled after Old Testament motifs? If Jesus had been killed, he was dead and buried because they had Nothing to gain by it. In fact, it cost them their lives. In the case of Paul, no one denies he was beheaded. So what did they gain by promulgating the view of a Jesus who did not exist in reality because Jesus was killed and buried? What did they gain by then creating a story that they knew was a lie and <clears throat> were persecuted, in prison? and some even were martyred because of it? Now, there are people who get killed for something they believe to be true. But that's different from you being killed for something you know you made up and you're promoting as a lie and then die for that. You got to either be insane or you're demon-possessed, right? So that doesn't explain away the fact that if Paul did make it up, number one, why did he convert to this movement? Number two, why would he then promote a Jesus story not anchored in history if Jesus was killed, dead and buried, and did not rise from the dead? When Paul suffered and was martyred for a movement that now you're telling me he was part of making up, he made up this story, but he had nothing to gain. In fact, he lost his life. So explain that to me.
0: I've I've come to notice that every time when someone has an objection for whatever kind of objection, just follow their reasoning to its conclusion, and you'll have your you have your answer already.
1: Yeah, like I it mean, just think about. It. Yeah, I mean, you and I we're not there so what we're convinced that the christian story is true so because i believe it's true i'm willing to die for it by the power of the spirit i hope by his power that i never cower away but that's different from you and i making up a story say man let's make up the story and then they put a knife to my neck and i say yeah it's true and i get beheaded why would i do that why would i lose my life for someone i know there's a lie and not be certain what's going to happen to me after i die makes no sense no it's it's silly the very fact that these are their arguments shows how unassailable how irrefutable the christian faith is because this is their best arguments the only way they can come up with something to get a person to doubt is that jesus never existed i mean your best option is just simply say jesus is a myth and paul is a myth it was made centuries later modeled after whatever roman
0: yeah that's God's cute myth. Because, but because... If you
1: acknowledge historical jesus and you acknowledge an historical Jesus movement, and you acknowledge the birth of the church and Paul's conversion, you got troubles, my friend, because you can't explain it away historically.
0: You can't explain it away because, like, I got hit right this over here is the New Testament. This compared to the rest of uh, the history, whatever history has to offer, like Gary Habermas, for instance, says that, uh, that the manuscripts that we have for uh, Alexander the Great who came three hundred years later. The Hindus yeah. came a thousand years later. And we are all like, excuse my language, um, that we were all just like BSing on uh, the first sixty years of the New Testament. Like, come on, yeah, come it's on. A, it's the best. The story tested. of
1: Buddha. The oldest records on Buddha is four hundred years after his reported existence. Even with Muhammad, the only thing we know, the only way we know about the Quran, its formulation, Muhammad, are from sources that are over hundred to two hundred years after his reported existence. And yet you're going to still question the New Testament when we have fragments from the start of the second century. And we have bishops who were disciples. P52, right. Yeah, P52. And we have bishops from the second century who were disciples of bishops who were the eyewitnesses of the apostles, like Irenaeus. And that's still not good enough? Then you know what? It's not an issue of facts. It's like one Jewish person told me actually years ago. He goes, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. I don't know, see my Man. mind is made up don't confuse me with the facts in other words i don't care about facts you already made up much his mind. In, and i like that i appreciate it. i go i like that you're being honest you don't care how much facts i can show you and how clear the case is you've made up your mind you won't believe that's the person you say okay i respect you and i leave you alone
0: right but then exactly it what paul says in second thessalonians 9 to 12 they second thessalonians 2 9 to 12 God will hand them over to the desires of their hearts. Yes,
1: that's it. So, yeah, so what once can you we get do? to that point, the real reason is a person just doesn't want to bow the knee to Jesus and have Jesus tell him or her how to live. We don't want him, Lord, over our lives. We don't want to be accountable to him. Just because you don't be accountable to him doesn't mean you won't be. Just because you deny his existence doesn't mean he doesn't exist. He is. He is Lord, and you will answer to him. So you can live in deception all you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right.
0: So I had uh, another question popped up in my mind. There was a time when you were asking, like, uh, who wants to do um, uh, Skype sessions like, for a question. Mm-hmm. One thing one thing popped up in my mind that I hear Tovia Singer once say. And Tovia Singer is a special kind of demonic. Absolutely yeah, tell me weird. That. Anyway, but he once uh, once said that um, the Jews are holding up the party. As in, like, Matthew 23, 39, it says... Uh, you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of yeah. words, particularly the particularly Jews. And Paul says in Romans 1, 16, to the Jew, Jew first, the then to the Gentiles. So my question is, do Jews have played a particular eschatological role in this whole game?
1: In Matthew 23, 37, 39, that has nothing to do with the return of Jesus Christ. This is where even people like Michael Brown misinterpret. Now, my personal mm-hmm. belief is, of course, the Jews will have a role to play because God is faithful. He'll always save a remnant of the physical seed of Abraham. He will not revoke that. What role will they exactly play? If you ask my opinion, I do believe they had to be Jews in the promised land for Zechariah 12, 13, 14 to be fulfilled. Because my understanding, of those chapters refer to second coming. I, I haven't found a convincing way of explaining those passages in light of the first coming. Because Zechariah 12:13-14 says, Jehovah's feet will touch the Mount of Olives, split it in half, and Jehovah will reign in Jerusalem. After the remnant of the Israel is preserved and the armies and nations are killed and then all the nations must at least appear before Jove and Jerusalem once a year. Well, according to Acts 1, 9 to 12, Jesus is going to return from where he left. He left from the Mount of Olives. He's going to return there with his holy ones. So I see that as being fulfilled in the return of our Lord Jesus physically bodily to the Mount of Olives. Right. That's why I don't find a good explanation of Zechariah 12, 13, 14, which has it fulfilled in the first coming. I don't see it. So... Until I do, I still believe, me personally, the Jews have to be in the land. That doesn't mean the state of Israel is pleasing to God. No, that doesn't mean that at all. It means just like all these other nations are allowed to exist with God's permission without God necessarily approving of them. Saudi Arabia exists because God allows it to exist, but it doesn't mean he approves of it. Uh, America exists because God allows it to exist, but it doesn't mean he approves of its politics. God in his sovereignty allows kingdoms to flourish, even abominations like the Roman Empire. Even Paul says, if they demand taxes, if you pay taxes, Romans 13, and tribute, but try to live peaceably. So here, Paul is telling you, God wants you to submit to the law as much as you can, unless it makes you break the law of God. Then you take a stand for law of God. But that doesn't mean Rome is pleasing to God. Mm-hmm. So that said, Israel doesn't mean it's pleasing to God. In fact, it's a lot of things it does is an abomination, and we don't oh, want to God. bend over backwards for the Jews at the expense of Palestinians because a lot of people don't realize not all palestinians are muslims and many of them are christians our brothers and sisters in christ so are we going to ignore them and just discard them because we have this weird understanding that we got to do everything to make israel reality otherwise jesus won't return right that doesn't that doesn't work like that but coming to the question i do believe they'll play a role to fulfill zechariah 12 13 and 14 a remnant will be preserved by the grace of god and engrafted in when he comes however Matthew 23, 37, 39 has nothing to do with second coming. And even Michael Brown, I hope he corrects his misinterpretation. And Lord willing, he's going to be debating one of the leading experts on what they call partial preterism, not full preterism. Full preterism is the denial that Jesus will return physically bodily. That to me is not biblical, not historical. I can't accept it. But partial preterism falls within the purview of Christianity in that. They say that many of the prophecies that have been misinterpreted, second coming, are actually referring to Jesus coming to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And if you read it carefully, they're right. That doesn't mean there are no prophecies of him coming physically bodily to the earth. It means the passages that are often quoted are not second coming. They're about Jesus coming in judgment to destroy Jerusalem and the temple, signifying the end of the Old Testament period, the start of the new covenant period. And that God does not deal with the world covenantly through Israel, He now does so through the church. Right,
0: right. Okay.
1: Yeah. Matthew 23 is not about second coming. What Jesus is saying is this is the last week, it's the passion week. Here's your final chance. If you don't say to me, Blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord, after this week, you won't see me again, because the next time you'll see me will be the destruction of the Jerusalem. And that's why he goes and prophesy. You see these buildings? Right. Want- then that Matthew,
0: then Matthew 24 comes in. You're that's the right. meaning He's right. telling him,
1: Look, you're going to fill up the full measure of your fathers this is it this is the last generation and then the, your house will be left desolate unless you learn to say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord because i'm going to give you a chance you say it then it won't be the end it will now be the start of the messianic era if you don't you're not going to see me and if you follow it after that week they never saw him again only the eyewitnesses saw him alive no one else saw him in jerusalem after that and next we hear is destruction of Jerusalem. So that has nothing to do with the second coming, that part.
0: Right. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you for explaining that one. One of my, one of the fa- one of my favorite prophecies that came into being were uh, Isaiah 66, 18 to 21, and Malachi 111, where it says that uh, in Isaiah yeah. that the, the Gentiles shall become as Levites. So what has happened for the past 2,000 years? Like the non-Jews have become worshipers of the God of Israel. Check that one. Malachi one eleven says that the Gentiles will bring burned incense to his altar. Yep. That's like the divine liturgy that we have for the past 2,000 years in the Orthodox Church, etc., etc.
1: This is more proof that the apostolic churches are right in the way they've structured their worship. Liturgical, where you have priests offering incense and the Eucharist, because that's the pure sacrifice of Malachi one eleven, even as understood by the early church fathers, even in the Didache, the Didache mentions Malachi one eleven is being fulfilled in the Eucharist. Right. Yeah. There, there's so know? much,
0: so much richness. I loved your um, the way you uh, uh, you use the story of the Exodus as uh, a typology of Christ, where like the Satan is the Pharaoh, uh, the baptism is the crossing of the Red Sea, yes. the the the, manna, the bread from heaven is the Eucharist, uh, uh, and it was not eventually Moses who brought the people into the promised land, Gosh, it was Yeshua.
1: Joshua, joshua exactly right. it's all there and, and all and there it's, not it's all there my insights the insights of the inspired authors of scripture like paul paul said that when they crossed the red sea they were being baptized into moses in the cloud right paul said that and paul said they're being fed spiritually spiritually by that spiritual rock and that rock was christ paul said that mm-hmm. and he says that as he's segwaying into his discussion of the eucharist first corinthians 10 and 11 right
0: yeah, God bless Paul. God bless you, Brother Sam.
1: God bless you too, man. And pray we all be like Paul in our love for Jesus, not for the praise of men. And be with him in glory, worshiping at the blessed feet of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
0: Amen. Amen. It has been nothing but a, 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 such an honor. It has nothing but a delight to have you here. On, uh...
1: I actually love this interview. It's one of my favorites, brother. I praise God for your channel. And we're going to help promote it, Lord willing. And if, with you. your permission to get more attention when this is aired, I'll upload it too. So it can send traffic your way.
0: Thank you. You're you're a your blessing to each and every one of us. And um right. what can I say? Uh, I've learned a lot from you. God willing, God will preserve you, you your health, brother. Uh, your beautiful, gorgeous sisters. Uh, my apologies. My, my, well, my yeah,
1: brain, no, no, my brain sisters is in the bride. Lord. That's what we want. We want them to be not just my daughters, but my sisters in faith, in Jesus' right. name. Right.
0: <laughs> praise Lord. Praise Lord. God bless you, brother Sam. So, each and every one of you. Thank you all for watching thus far, and. Uh, All the health and all the best that the Lord has to offer you. Bye, everyone.